1: everyone and welcome back to new books and diplomatic history a podcast channel on the new books network i'm andrew pace the host of the channel today we'll be talking to stephen simon about his new book grand delusion the rise and fall of american ambition in the middle east which was published in 2023 by penguin press stephen welcome to the show well thank you very much I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. In your preface to your book, you note that your book is not only a history of U.S. entanglement in the Middle East, but also a memoir. Can you begin the interview by telling us about your professional background and how that frames your book? Uh, uh,
0: yeah, uh, of course. Um, uh, my my professional background is uh, uh, you know it's a little it's a little bit scattered um and 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 maybe hard to uh, to uh, follow I, it, my my first career um, such as it was uh was, um uh, in ancient history uh it it's also is ancient history but it, it was um you know ancient history at the time uh, uh you know as an undergraduate I did classics in Near Eastern languages and then I went on. Um, uh to study i suppose what um you know, would would be called roman near east uh that was uh you know that was my thing um uh i i, I wasn't really very good at it and uh you know ultimately um uh, left the phd program i was in and 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 just uh, sort of wandered around uh, uh for a while doing a number of things I worked for uh, uh an evangelical uh, publishing company uh for uh for a while providing uh, you know consulting advice for movies uh, about Jesus that was being that were being filmed in um, Israel for use in vacation Bible schools in the United States things like that um and then uh I Somehow segued from there into uh, New York City uh, government, where I um, uh, was the uh, legislative coordinator for the Human Resources Administration, uh, which administered public assistance and, uh, you know, medical um, uh, uh, services delivery uh, in New York to the indigent. You know, it was a (laughs) it was a bit disconnected but anyway then I went from there to uh uh to Princeton um uh where I uh, uh got a degree in international uh international relations and then uh went from there uh into government um you know first uh working on the defense budget at the White House and um uh and then going into the State Department I was in the State Department for a while and then did to. I, in the course of which I did two um, uh, White House tours, uh, one um, as uh, the NSC Senior Director for Counterterrorism uh, in the Clinton administration, and then um, uh NSC Senior Director for Middle East and North Africa in the Obama administration. And then, um, you know, between those stints and, and, and afterward, I mostly taught at a succession of schools. Uh, you know, colleges and universities, principally in in, in the Northeast, but also worked uh, doing uh, working on classified programs at the Rand Corporation. I was a, a Middle East Middle Eastern Studies Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, you know, and I worked as a as a consultant for the Court of the Crown Prince uh, in um, in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates for a while, and. I don't know. <laughs> you know. lived in Manama, you know, Bahrain for a while, doing some think, think tank stuff. I, you know, it's it's essentially it's been all over the place. Um and and now, you know, here I am at the University of Washington at the Jackson School for International Studies. And um uh just uh uh in the uh in the twilight of, of my career, uh, playing um, you know, goodbye, Mr. Chips. Um if so uh, uh, that's really it, and 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 you know, writing these writing these books, uh, the one that we're talking about today, and one that, that I've um, uh, uh, I've embarked on now, uh, which would which will be a history of
1: the um, uh, U.S. Uh, global war on terror. Sounds great. Uh, obviously, you've had a, a an enormous amount of experience in government, and it sounds like. Uh, out of government so uh an eclectic uh, lifetime of experience working on international issues um your book is entitled grand delusion um can you tell us what that grand delusion was or perhaps we should refer to it more as grand delusions uh, a series of um aspirations and illusions that the, uh, the united states pursued for 40 years in the middle east
0: yeah, so uh, the reason um, I chose the singular, and I did ponder, you know, the, the, the question that you just raised um, uh, when I was thinking about titles for the book, uh, is that there was such a strong family resemblance among the different delusions that I thought they could be usefully grouped. and And... <clears throat> you know the classic uh, formulation in this in this period uh, of that grand delusion was george h w bush's uh, new world order and uh, uh administrations before uh, uh george h w bush and afterwards uh entertained um many of these same many of many, many delusions that could be regarded as um you know nested or subsets um nested within or subsets of um of the new world order trope and uh so uh, in, in Carter there was an ethical imperative to foreign policy and that that sort of signified a kind of a, a new uh US approach to the world where um you know ethics uh, ethical considerations would somehow trump um uh you know real politique uh, in uh, uh, and even uh, and then in, in the Reagan administration, there was the Freedom Crusade uh, that was, um, you know, sort of closely entwined with concepts of a new world order. And then, of course, there was the new world order itself, um, uh, advocated uh, or, or or really declared uh, by the by the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, and Clinton it was uh enlargement um well in uh yeah so um in clinton it was enlargement and and that was also in a sense in a sense eschatological because it was inspired uh by um uh frank fukuyama's uh end of history which emerged at about that time um and and Fukuyama was the deputy director of uh the State Department policy planning staff, uh undoubtedly participated in those in those discussions. And in fact, he would have been selected for that job because his uh you know, his uh analytical um uh you know thinking about uh international politics and uh, and the and and the evolution of politics uh would have been appealing uh to uh to the administration Now, I reached out to, to Fukuyama about this and and uh, he said well he really had no influence you know on what was going on um but uh, that was uh a tribute I think to his um humility um I because it, it's That you could trace the thread pretty clearly. You don't need an electron microscope, you know, um, uh, to do that. And uh, you know, enlargement, which was the Clinton administration's uh, version of uh, new world order, that is to say, the enlargement of the world of democracies, um, and. And the transformation of the last holdouts, you know, those who hadn't gotten Fukuyama's memo, um, uh, would be uh, compelled uh, to make the transition uh, to democracy and and therefore putting my old theology hat back on um, uh, paved the way for the kingdom of God, you know. Uh, So that... uh, so that was Clinton. Uh, that was, that was their, uh, delusion. Uh, George W. Bush, um, uh, <laughs> you know, had, uh, uh, had a, a profound illusion too, which came to be, um, uh, dubbed, uh, the, uh, freedom agenda, which was in a, somewhat somewhat of a perverse way, um, a nice uh adaptation of uh, Clinton's enlargement um uh doctrine. But then, you know, it, and, and Obama kind of carried this through, at least the first part of his 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 first term, where uh you know his his team and and he himself were, I think, attracted uh to the idea of uh, reputation to protect which um uh, the lineage of which could be traced directly um to uh to george h.w bush and the attributes of his new world order so um you know the the lineage the, the the parentage i suppose you might say of this of this idea originated way back then in a very different you know administration But uh, the results um, uh, for Obama were so negative uh, in his first two years um, that uh, being the kind of decision maker he was, uh, and in some ways he was was sort of classic senior executive, um, he, uh, he just abandoned, you know, all that. Um, and 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 that was it. Uh, there, there, you know. After that, there was no grand delusion regulating uh, Obama's uh, foreign and and security policy, and that was certainly true of of uh, his successor, Donald Trump, and um, and really uh, up until today, I suppose, um, it described. Uh, Biden's uh, uh, foreign policy as well. I mean, Biden placed, uh, you know, a strategic emphasis on alliances and so forth. But in terms of the Middle East, when you look at the, uh, uh, at the only sort of uh, full dress um, description um, of the administration's Middle East policy in a speech given by uh, his um, Middle East advisor, Brett McGurk, uh, was... Um, classic Realpolitik. I mean, you can scour that document, but you will not see uh, any word deriving from the Greek stem, you know, demos. <laughs> There's, yeah, there ain't no democratization uh, there. So, um, you know, there, so you had this trend um you know, certainly, and just looking at it conservatively, let's say, you had this trend um, beginning with with Reagan, uh, where um uh yeah, these grand ideas, these these seemingly ideological impulses driving uh increasing um uh interventionism, uh US interventionism in the Middle East, which Peaks, you know, in a way, uh, with the second Gulf War. In the way that Suez in 1956 represented, you know, Britain's peak of of involvement in um, in the Middle East, and then it begins to decline uh, as, you know, these ideas, um, these grand delusions, became, uh, you know, uh, uh, risible you know in a way um maybe that's putting it too strongly but i'm not i don't i don't think so in any case the marginal costs uh you know attached to pursuit of these grand delusions um uh certainly uh, you know exceeded the the returns you know the marginal returns and 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 by quite a large margin uh so uh so they tended to uh, uh to fade out uh in 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 a pretty dramatic way so so yes grand delusions but uh, united thematically
1: really um so hence you know hence the title you also highlight this pattern of uh retrenchment and engagement that went on through successive administrations uh, in the pursuit of these grand uh, ideals Um, And one of the things that I thought was so, uh, I guess, ironic was that in the pursuit of these grand ideas, the United States and these various presidential administrations ended up making these incredible Faustian bargains, um, whether that was in pursuit of engagement in the Middle East or retrenchment. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about uh, some of those uh, those bargains that you see as, uh, ultimately being not worth the cost. I mean, I, su- I suppose,
0: uh, you know, re- readers of the book, including yourself will, will have concluded or will, would conclude that I didn't think any of it was, was worth the cost. Um, uh, you, you know, regardless of, uh, you know, the, the Faustian, um, you know, bargain, uh, I, um, that was supposed to produce gains um, in some way. Um, so uh, I, I, I rather think that the administration, in, 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 in terms of Faustian bargains, um, was... Well, let, let, let me just step back and clarify... You, um this term faustian bargain in this context as i think you um uh you mean it the um and if not you know correct me and um uh, uh we can we can get back on track but the bargains uh were were faustian in that the grand delusions the united states was pursuing uh, uh had heavy costs but in a few of these administrations not costs absorbed by the United States but rather costs that were transferred uh, to Middle Eastern peoples so that was the deal with the devil so um, if if the United States is to bring about this better world then it has to do some pretty dramatic things and uh you know the the, the best example really of that I mean there's a string of examples as you point out but the most striking because it's 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 a moment of 10 seconds or 15 seconds that's captured uh, on video is uh, an interview uh, on 60 minutes uh, in 1996 I think um, uh, you, yeah, it would have to have been 1996, uh, uh, with uh, then Secretary of State uh, Madeleine Albright. And um, uh, her interviewer uh, says, uh, you know, remarks on uh, a, a study that had just been uh, completed by the United Nations, which indicated uh, or estimated that uh, upwards of uh, 560,000 uh, Iraqi children had perished in consequence of uh U.S um, um backed uh sanctions economic sanctions against Saddam Hussein's Iraq uh, in pursuit of a uh, you know program of regime change and um and and allegedly the search for weapons of mass destruction and and Albright's um a response to this response to the interviewers elaboration that well you know that's more that's more than the number of children who were killed at hiroshima uh and and nagasaki she says well you know it was a hard call but we thought it was worth it now you know on you know on, on on many levels that's kind of a breathtaking you know statement because she certainly didn't dispute the fact that there'd been this terrible cost um but it, it if you sort of knew what was going on and this is clarified in the book um this was th- this interview was conducted almost a year after the cia um declared uh, in a publicly released you know assessment that there were no WMD in Iraq, okay? They just weren't there. Um, And uh, the, the, the benefits of somehow dislodging Saddam Hussein, who was, you know, at that point already fading as a leader and, you know, it's... It's just you know, really kind of astonishing. Now that is that is one hell of a Faustian bargain. Uh, so, you know, I think throughout this period the U.S had been uh, really heedless um, uh, or if not heedless, then uh, certainly willing to accept and justify as worthwhile uh, the impact of its interventions on 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 the
1: people. Uh, of the region. Yeah. One of the things I think your narrative does really well is discussing this, this interplay or these tensions, as you call them between intentionalists in government, uh, policymakers, um, cabinet officials, the president himself, um, and the consequentialists, uh, people on the ground in the middle East who are uh, bearing the burdens of American policies. And it was astonishing to me how, um, how well-intentioned American officials thought their policies were, and how divorced they actually seemed to be from uh, the consequences of their policies uh, when it came to the, their their impacts on human beings in the Middle East. Um, but one of the things I I found so curious was that you mentioned in again in a number of administrations that. Uh, the Reagan administration or the Clinton administration uh, failed to take heed of their own intelligence analyses um, about what the effect of US policies might be. And in fact, you you commented a number of times that it was actually par for the course for policymakers to dismiss intelligence analysis. Why why is that the case? And and why then do we what's the point of having good intelligence if we never pay heed to it
0: well yeah yeah no that's a great question so um uh, the reason now that we've discussed why it's singular and and not plural the reason I chose delusion uh as a word in the first place is because what characterizes delusion is not just it's not just a, a a dumb idea um it's what makes a dumb idea a delusion uh, is when it becomes impervious to contradictory evidence. So a delusion is 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 just a bad idea, but it's a bad idea uh, that um, you know uh, the holder of the idea uh, will not accept conflicting evidence, evidence which shows that it's not a very good idea and uh one of the reasons i i included uh so much about uh the us you know intelligence during these various uh administrations apart from the fact that uh the the cia has a fantastic website called the library you know the cia library reading room uh which um you know has a lot of great material in it and then of course there's a the, uh there's a program at George Washington University that cobbles together a lot of intelligence documents uh, that have been declassified uh, either by U.S agencies themselves or through um, uh, foreign um, uh, intelligence um, uh, uh, uh you know just I'm so uh, besotted with illusions uh with uh with acronyms that I can't uh, I can't remember what FOIA stands for, but it's um, you know, it's a means by which citizens can uh, petition uh, e- you know, the US government for the release of classified information.
1: The Freedom of Information Act.
0: Yes. so the um, uh, so there's a lot of a lot of material out there to work with uh, if you're an historian or a you know just a kind of ordinary writer um, uh, like myself. <laughs> And uh, and it was pretty clear that uh, the intelligence was uh, routinely disregarded, and um, you know that didn't surprise me um, as a you know as a as a fact. What did surprise me was the consistency of it. In other words, you work in government long enough, you you see intelligence disregarded, you know, uh, quite frequently, but you're dealing with things on such a case-by-case case basis, and you don't really think of these, you know, episodes as being really connected. Um, you know, every issue you work on is separate and new when, you know, you just deal with it and then move on. Uh, but it's only when you look at the extended record as an outsider that you, you, you see the the consistency with which, uh, with which intelligence is disregarded. That is intelligence that doesn't, you know um, uh, uh, support the direction of the administration's policy uh, or its instinctive views on uh, the situation that they're grappling with, whatever that situation is. You know, there's a famous anecdote um, uh, uh, from the Lyndon Johnson administration. Where it's really great um, because it it illustrates uh, this phenomenon. Uh, you you're probably familiar with this one, but it illustrates the you know the 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 durability of this of this phenomenon. He's he's receiving these intelligence reports, and you work on Vietnam, so I'm you must have heard this. But he, he, you know he gets these intelligence reports that uh, run counter to um, what his administration is trying to do, and and he says, as the you know the West Texas Hill, you know farmer, uh, you know that he was, uh, or that he purported to be, um, he he said, here I am, you know, I'm just I'm just milking the cow, and I've just got that a uh, wonderful bucket of fresh milk. And then that damn cow just swishes her shit-stained tail right through the pail. And um, in this case, the you know the shit-stained tail, uh, you know, tail was you know the intelligence that seemed to show that his policies were not going to work, or were not, or were not working. And that's how. That's how policymakers feel about intelligence, and and intelligence agencies generally understand this perfectly well. And it's created, um, uh, you know, a phenomenon uh, that uh, you might anticipate it would, which is that intelligence agencies, senior intelligence um, officials, will shape their analyses to either conform to or at least not contradict the instincts of policymakers. Because if you're the head of an intelligence agency, you know, what you prize more than anything is access to your principal, is access to the president, the national security advisor. And you're stuck on the horns of a dilemma because if if you do speak truth to power, then um, you'll be cut out. Then you'll lose the access that you need because it's it's really the reason for your being, right, is to have access to the president and be advising him. So, um, uh, you know, you're going to try to, uh, square that circle by presenting your findings in a way that don't alienate uh, the president or his national uh, security advisor. Now sometimes there's just no way to avoid that. Uh, so uh, so you'll be um, you'll be simply ignored. Now, sometimes, um, you know, that results in leaks to the press and so forth, and and you know, one can see daylight just by looking at the newspaper. You can see daylight between the administration, between that the White House and its own, um, and its own security folks, uh, its own intelligence folks. It's really, um, it's if if you're an intelligence, um, you, you know, official, it can be very frustrating. What's striking uh in the material that that i've compiled in the book is the uh the number of times the intelligence community was actually willing uh to uh to counter uh, the administration's um you know expectations and the validity of its objectives and then as as you're pointing out andrew the, <laughs> it's you know, correspondingly striking um, uh, how the administration felt free simply to, you know, disregard uh, that countervailing uh, uh, information. And it's sort of interesting the way they remember that because, uh, you know, I conducted you know interviews for this book, of course, and I interviewed um, uh, one of the national security advisors, uh, you know, from from the Clinton uh days um about the enormous toll that uh u.s policy was taking on uh, ordinary iraqis well um i mean i was it, i was at the white house at the time so i mean i saw you know all this coming across my desk and and the intelligence reports were slugged you know for the white house distribution you know at the white house and so forth um and uh i said well you know um uh well surely uh i said to my interlocutor you know i said well surely you saw these you know these reports um what what did you what did you make of them or if you didn't see the reports i'm sure you were told because that's just how the the system works and and you know his reply was uh well i didn't know and uh, and and he said if 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 he had known well he would have you know initiated a change in in policy but uh he you know i uh, i i'm not one to you know contradict um uh you know people on 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 things like that i'm i'm i'm, I'm fairly sure you know that well, he just remembered it, you know, that way. Um, uh, so, you know, intelligence can be, intelligence reports can be rejected. Uh, they can be ignored. They can be uh, sort of suppressed, um, uh, you know, psychologically, like um, uh, there's a, something of a cognitive dissonance um, on the policymaker's part when uh, he or she receives um, uh, uh unfriendly uh intelligence that is to say intelligence unfriendly to his or her uh policy uh, preferences and so that cognitive dissonance is resolved by by simply you know suppressing awareness of these uh of these views of these intelligence assessments That Oh, what i've just what i've just laid out is is by the way it's a perennial phenomenon uh and it and it's not um a, you know uh, a a feature of democratic administrations or republican administrations it's just um you know it's baked into the um uh, policy formation and implementation pie um that that every administration regardless of political stripe has in the oven
1: and that was striking to me too that you know these in- intelligence uh, i don't know if i'd say intelligence failures as much as you know intelligence negligence uh, wasn't uh, wasn't unique to any particular administration or uh, any particular party um but one of the things i also wanted to ask was uh, about the the contingency of events in this history uh because I think one of the hardest things to do in writing history is to put yourselves in the shoes of historical actors and look forwards um, rather than to embrace the uh, human tendency to uh, use hindsight uh, to view history simply from uh, the present looking backwards. Um, because when we do that, I think there's a uh, the temptation to think that all of this was inevitable, That these administrations, whether Republican or, or, or Democratic, uh, were uh, motivated by these delusions. And, of course, when they were impervious to intelligence or evidence, uh, they were bound to make these bad decisions. They were bound to end up making these Faustian bargains that would cost uh, thousands of lives. Um, but your work shows very strongly that none of this was inevitable. Uh, the Gulf War didn't have to unfold the way it did. Nine uh, 9-11 didn't have to unfold the way it did. Um can you can you talk a little bit about um I mean let's take 9-11 for example. Why, why wasn't it inevitable? Uh, why what were the sort of contingent points um in US involvement in the Middle East?
0: Well in 9-11, um there were a couple of things uh at work so uh we all we all know because it's 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 been studied so closely that um and there were serious mistakes uh that were made uh, uh in the US government uh on uh on in both the law enforcement and intelligence communities and um these so um, uh, so there were those. But then there were policymakers uh, errors as well uh, in in two in two respects, okay? So prior to 9/11, uh, the United States failed to put the kind of pressure on Saudi Arabia uh, that might have um, that might have made it more difficult, for the hijackers to get into the united states and establishment and establish themselves there um, you know to prepare for and carry out the attack and um, that was uh that was a function of you know the perceived role of saudi arabia in american security uh writ large i mean and and, and the american economy writ large. Uh, And uh, the United States, even though it was extremely concerned about uh, Saudi-funded organizations uh, uh, involved in the attacks against the U.S. embassies in 1998 in uh, Nairobi and Dar es Salaam, they uh, they did not really push uh, the Saudis for the kind of assistance that uh, would have been required um, uh, to uh, uh, to uncover uh, the Saudi officials in uh, the United States who were alluded to in the 9/11 commission report um, uh, who apparently facilitated uh, the uh, the hijackers uh in the united states so that was that was one policy issue uh and and the other policy issue was uh, um uh you know that of a different administration the george w bush uh administration which um had its own sort of delusion and the delusion was um the only thing that matters are states. And uh, there was uh, um, a, a tendency, no, not even a, it was more than a tendency. There was a deep conviction that sub-state actors uh, didn't matter, that they were ineffectual, they that they couldn't affect uh, the United States um, uh, in any way. And of course, the counterterrorism team uh, at the White House at that time uh, uh, pled with uh, with the new administration, with their new um, with their new bosses, George W. Bush, Condoleezza Rice, and so forth, um, uh, begged them to understand that this conception was wrong, and that there was a substate actor poised to uh, attack the United States in a devastating way. Um, but the but the new administration's conception of the international order uh, just got just got in the way and as a result um uh you know the the measures that would have to have been taken uh to protect the united states against this attack were not uh were not taken so um and 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 by the way the intelligence, um, you know, on the uh, impending attack, was was voluminous, and it was disregarded, you know, by the administration, um, uh, and and it quite astonishingly
1: so. Yeah, you and uh, and Dan Benjamin, I believe, had um, assembled some of uh, the evidence that suggested that uh, Bin Laden and Al Qaeda were. Uh, plotting, and preparing imminent attack on the United States. Um, You you conclude your review of, uh, what is it, eight administrations, uh, from Carter to um, to Trump. Uh, You conclude by saying that uh, since World War II, the United States' goal has been to secure Israel and Saudi Arabia and I think, in your assessment, you believe Washington has generally succeeded, but the main question, of course, is at, but at what cost. Um, and you conclude your book with a little bit of a discussion about uh, the current Biden administration, and you said that the future of U.S. involvement is not likely to resemble the past or the present. And it, it seems to me that you've written your book at a at a time when U.S. policy in the Middle East is poised between um continuity and change uh just in in closing i wanted to ask whether you feel like uh the current war in gaza and uh, hamas's recent attack on uh, israel last month um whether you think that that may lead to whether you think that that will push the united states towards continuity or towards change yeah
0: so um, that's great. That's a great question and and it's been on my mind, you know, constantly over the past uh, uh few weeks. I'm sure. <laughs> um yeah, so um uh look, I I think your your characterization of the situation is really shrewd. I mean, the administration is at a kind of tipping point. Um an inflection point as the
1: biden administration likes to say
0: ah inflection point yes (laughs) oh i have a bad inflection i can't come to work today (laughs) um so yeah um they were the biden administration uh for the first year and a half um uh simply ignored the middle east and um in in continuity with uh you know it's Biden administration predecessor and, and Obama in his second term, except for Obama's Iran deal. So, um, you know, it all looked as though, you know, the trend was continuing just as, as predicted. Then um, uh, China arose as a serious strategic challenge for the United States, or at least it's perceived that way. I'm not a China expert. I don't I don't know, but that's that's how the administration was clearly uh, approaching um, uh, its relationship with China. Uh, it was um, uh, uh, certainly rivalrous um, and uh, potentially adversarial, okay? And um, you know, in a situation like that, uh, administrations have to do some serious planning. uh well, what happens if push comes to shove here uh, and we wind up uh in um uh in in a serious fight uh with China. Is it going to be a long war? Is it going to be a short war? um uh, you know how do we how do we prepare for this and and uh that would, um, in, instantly raise the question of uh, Chinese access to Gulf oil in a in a contingency, because that would have an impact on actually how long China could sustain combat operations in a in a long war with the United States, because China gets so much of its uh energy resources which are growing steadily uh for fossil fuels uh from from saudi arabia so um now this this concern was not something the administration was going to be talking about publicly um because you know, why would they why would they do that um Uh, They don't want to put the Saudis on the spot. Uh, They don't want to make things worse with China than they already are. This is all based on some kind of, you know, contingency planning. Who knows? It may never become important. But you can't be too careful. So um, you go to the Saudis in a way that you wouldn't have even a year before or maybe two years before. And you say, well, you know, if, if things get tough with China, we don't, you, you got to keep them out. You're not going to give them any oil and you're going to keep them out of your facilities and you're going to do all that. And, um, and Saudi Arabia says, well, yeah. And, and w- why would we do that? Um, and, um, the United States says, because at the end of the day, uh, you know, we're your bigger friend and, uh, we will, uh, We will do things for you. So, for example, we will give you a security commitment. We will sign a defense Mm -hmm. treaty with you that looks very much like the NATO treaty. And uh, since you're so interested in it, we will uh, allow you and facilitate um, your acquisition of an entire nuclear fuel cycle. So uh, a nuclear uh, reactor... Complex that will enable you to enrich uranium uh, on your own on your own soil, uranium that's mined uh, within Saudi Arabia, and that's something that the United States would ordinarily never agree to. So, um, so the United States is saying, "Well, we're gonna, we can do a lot for you if you make certain um, uh, guarantees to us." And we'll also uh, need uh, some sort of, um, you know, concessionary arrangement on on oil prices, which is to say, you're going to have to disassociate yourself within OPEC uh, uh, OPEC Plus from Russia, um, and and stop pursuing uh, production cuts that um, enable Russia to carry on its war against Ukraine. So. You know, there's there's something big going on there, but um, it's most of it is not anything that the United States could talk about, certainly in advance of of a deal. So you need cover, and um, uh, the cover uh, uh, that the United States devises is is Saudi-Israeli normalization. Uh, that's bound to get a lot of attention, and. Uh, uh you know, a lot of favorable interest uh, and 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 then you know, the emerging story becomes uh, the United States uh, is willing to sign a defense treaty with Saudi Arabia and give it access to uh, the entire nuclear fuel cycle in return for the Saudis, agreeing to normalization of relations with israel so if you're kind of an old hand um, you know you look at this and you say huh that's strange Mm -hmm. i mean the us saudi i mean saudi israeli normalization well that's a nice thing certainly Um, You know, everybody's wanted that for a long time, but that has nothing to do with American interests. Not every good thing matters for, you know, U.S. strategic interest, and that's one of those good things that doesn't. So why would the United States make these sweeping um, arrangements with Saudi Arabia in return for that? A defense treaty that could drag the United States into a war? Uh, a precedent-shattering um, uh, uh, nuclear um, uh, industrial arrangement with Saudi Arabia that could enable them to build a bomb if they decide to do it. Um, those are such big things. And, and in return for what? Uh, Saudi Israeli normalization? I mean, the United States in this picture is making big strategic moves towards Saudi Arabia in return for something that is distinctly not strategic for the United States. So, you know, if you're an old hand, you say, okay, well, what's really going on here, you know, and what's really going on there is China. Um, So I say all this um, in, in response to your question about this inflection point and whether anything is changing and what's in, in, in effect. So what's new here and, and the China, you know, issue um uh was was the factor that drove uh, uh the beginning of a US uh re-engagement uh in the form of its um you know negotiations uh with the Saudis on on Saudi Israeli normalization. So that was the first kind of interesting shift. Now was that I mean I, on the one hand that was undoubtedly kind of a return to engaging, you know, in the Middle East. But on the other, um, uh, it was uh, a function not of U.S. interest in the Middle East per se, but U.S. interest in managing um, uh, the potential course of a conflict with China. So a kind of uh, huge geostrategic uh, kind of thing that transcended in, you know, any U.S. interest in the Middle East per se. And then on the heels of that you have this gaza detonation and uh there uh a, any administration that did not want to be dragged into a war uh would have to maximize um that goal by getting involved early and it's paradoxical because you say well if you want to stay out well, why are you getting in well, sometimes the only way you can stay out is by getting in and uh, uh just to to clarify that um you know deep zen paradox <laughs> um it, it, if this if this war um uh escalates to include iran and in lebanese's bola then the united states will probably get involved because iran uh, and Lebanese Hezbollah will wind up killing Americans, and so that's you know that's sort of you know inevitable, and and the United States had to get involved early, um, in part to uh, uh, to push off the Israeli ground incursion, uh, to create space for certain uh, important things, and one was. Um, Prepare the ground for humanitarian aid to Gaza in this, you know, horrible, uh, you know, horrible scenario. And the other um was uh to avert the possibility of escalation by deterring uh Hezbollah and Iran from uh from widening the war in a significant way and especially one a way that could threaten Americans and and there um you know the United States uh sent two carrier battle groups two carrier strike groups to the eastern Mediterranean there's a wing you know on each one of those decks um, uh you know or below decks and uh, you know that's that's a total of 180 airplanes uh, and there are two carrier strike groups uh, in the Persian Gulf. I mean, that's a big chunk of U.S. Uh, carrier-based air power, um, yeah. and it's all there, you know, in the region, and it's all there um, uh, to say to uh, Lebanese Hezbollah and Iran, as the president put it, just don't. So um, you know, so this, these, these. Um, uh, manifestations of U.S. interest and involvement in the current crisis, uh, I, I think, are necessary from the administration's perspective to reduce the possibility, the probability, that the U.S. will get dragged in in some major way, because they don't want to be, for very good, for very good reason. I don't know if that was a very helpful you know response to your question but um to your very good question
1: but it's the best i could come up with on the fly that's great that's a great answer uh well stephen we've taken up a lot of your time uh we really appreciate you being on the the show today i was wondering if you could give us just a a teaser perhaps of your your next book which you say is going to be a global history of the war on terror is that right
0: yes yes it'd be a global history of the war on terror it'll be pretty comprehensive um, because it will cover uh, not just the um, the diplomatic, military, and intelligence uh, dimensions of of the war, uh, but will also cover its U.S. domestic political uh, impact uh, and and the way in which the war on terror uh, uh, affected Americans and reshaped in a sense uh, uh us politics um and that's uh you know that's a big claim uh whether you know I'm I'm going to be successful in demonstrating it uh sort of remains to be seen and I, I, I think so but um you know that the beauty of that uh you know that will be in the eyes of the of of the beholder so that's and i think that's really important um uh uh you know as 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 a project because i don't think you know as a nation we've really come to grips uh with the war on terror and all its and all its effects not just abroad but uh but at home and um you know if i can uh if i can put things this way i mean a surprise attack which is what 9 11 was um well, it could happen again. Of course. Yeah. It won't be Al-Qaeda, it'll be something else, but it will be a surprise. And and nations, and we're looking at the situation in Gaza right now as a sort of a classic case. Nations can really get torqued and 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 even deranged by a you know a successful surprise attack that is very that is very costly. Especially against the background of um, uh, complicated and and divisive um, uh, politics, you know, in the in the in the victim country, so uh, it's it's important to establish, I think, the the vast array of ways in which the global war on terror affected the United States and and, and the world at large. So that if if the United States is, God forbid, um, subject to another uh, surprise attack that might even be much worse than 9-11, we're aware of, um, you know, the dangers uh, uh, inherent in a rash and um, and, and
1: violent response. Well, thanks again for being on the show. We really uh,
0: uh, appreciate it
1: um and uh i look forward to reading uh reading your next book
0: thanks very much i appreciate the opportunity really do